Well, hello, Rocky Peak. It's great to be with you. Uh, my name is Michael. I'm one of the pastors here. And just, again, want to welcome, uh, wish all of you moms this entire weekend a uh, happy Mother's Day. I just have a great time of celebration, and especially during this time of crisis. So many of you are going the extra mile to help serve your family, to kind of hold things together. We just appreciate it so much. So may the Lord really meet you and bless you this whole weekend as we celebrate you together. But as I mentioned, my name's Michael. I'm one of the pastors here at the church at Rocky Peak. If it's your very first time, like Dre said, want to welcome you. But we're going to go into our time of teaching. So if you've got your Bibles, you have your apps, uh, you've uh, hopefully downloaded the, the message note sheet, uh, I'm ready to jump in. So I hope you're ready to go. Let's pray together. Father, we're just so thankful to be here uh, under your leadership as a church. And again, though we're spread across uh, counties, across states, across the world, and yet we know that your spirit holds us together. You've said where two or three are gathered in your name, you are there. We thank you for the ministry of your Holy Spirit, especially during this time of crisis. Father, we, we have a, a tremendous need for the empowering of your spirit. And so we pray that today as we unpack your word, uh, we pray that you'd open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word as the psalmist prayed, and that we would be inspired, that we would learn together, we'd grow together, and most of all, that we would receive a fuller measure of your spirit in our life. We pray in your name, and everyone said, amen. Well, our story starts today in a large suburb uh, uh, in our country. And uh, the day started like uh, any other day. There's nothing to suggest that this day would be different than, uh, than anything that had gone before. It was a beautiful day. And about 5.30 in the evening, uh, he was standing in his kitchen. His wife was, uh, he was in the dining room, the wife was in the kitchen, and they were just talking. And all of a sudden, he hears a noise. And to this day, it's very difficult for him to be able to describe that noise. It started like a, a low rumble. Uh, it sounded like a rising wind. Then the best he could tell, it was coming down the alleyway in behind their second story apartment. And so he went to the window and he looked down the alleyway. He couldn't really see a lot, but, but though the sun was shining in the front of the apartment, there seemed like an eerie darkness coming towards him. He felt like he was in a horror film. And so he wasn't really sure what was going on, but he was pretty sure it wasn't good. And that's when it happened. Well, today we are continuing our series that we've been last about four weeks called The Power of the Resurrection, Hope in Times of Crisis. And if you're new, a special welcome to you. This is a series about the resurrection of Jesus and the whole new era that the resurrection of Jesus led to, not only in his life, but in all of our lives and in all creation. And uh, so what we're doing in this series is going back in time, uh, back to uh, kind of what happened right after the resurrection of Jesus. And so we've been, uh, we've been in, in a journey through the early chapters of the book of Acts. And so if you have your Bible, if you have your apps, we're going to go ahead and jump right in to Acts chapter 2. There in your note sheet is a section called The Power of the Resurrection, the Gift of the Spirit. Now, I need to set this up as we get started before we jump in and start reading. Uh, if you've been here the last few weeks, we, we've watched as... Uh, 
as uh, a man named Luke has told us the story of the early movement of Jesus. He tells the story in two different volumes, in, in the first volume, which is the Gospel of Luke, and then the second volume is the book of Acts. And so we, we've watched as Jesus has risen from the dead, and then Luke has documented for us what happened over the next month and a half, about 40 days after the resurrection, until Jesus ascended, returned to his Father in the heavens, and was crowned King of creation. And before he left, uh, Jesus uh, told his disciples that they were to, uh, to, to not to go out and carry his commission out to the world, but they were to uh, go back to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, so they've been waiting now for about a week and a half, about 10 days. And remember, they don't know how long this is gonna go on, how long they're gonna have to wait. They have no idea what's gonna happen when the Holy Spirit comes. So they're not really sure what they're waiting for. So they're spending a lot of time together. They're praying, they're reminiscing, they're building community, uh, and they're just spending a lot of time seeking the Lord, preparing for whatever is coming. And on this particular day, uh, it was a very special day. When they all woke up that morning, it was a very special day in the life of Israel. Because in the life of Israel, there's three annual pilgrimage feasts. There's Passover uh, in the spring, and then uh, the second one is Pentecost, that's right before the summer. And so uh, at the Feast of Pentecost, people, Jewish, Jewish pilgrims are gonna come from all over the world, invade Jerusalem, uh, thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of people to worship God at the, uh, at the, temp, the huge temple complex that scholars told us, tell us could have hold uh, up to 100,000 people in the courts on the temple complex. And so on this particular day, when, the, when they get up, these early followers of Jesus, or there's about 120 of them, are going to gather together in a large estate. Now, this, we're not sure if it's the same room they've been meeting in every day, but they're going to gather at 9 o'clock in the morning, uh, one of the Jewish hours of prayer, just to, be, to kick off the day, beginning to seek the Lord in prayer. And so that's the scene. Jerusalem is packed full of pilgrims. Uh, it's a high holy day. People have come from all over the world to worship God on this day. These followers of Jesus are meeting at 9 o'clock a.m. in a large estate just to do what they've been doing, not knowing what's going to happen. Remember, they've never read this story, right? For them, it's just another day, but a very special day because the day of Pentecost. So with that as an intro, let's open up our Bibles, our turn, open our, turn on our apps, and we'll go to Acts chapter 2. So in Acts chapter two, uh, Luke writes that when the day of Pentecost came, so this is about a little bit less than two months after the arrest and execution of Jesus. Passover, of course, is in the spring, near like our Easter. Uh, Pentecost is the, the feast that comes 50 days uh, after the feast of Passover. In, the, in Hebrew culture, it's called the Feast of Weeks. So seven weeks and one day. Uh, in the Greek, penta, uh, Pentecost means uh, uh, 50. So they call it the Feast of Pentecost. So, so we're now towards the end of May. And uh, on this day, the day of Pentecost come, they're all together in one place. Now, Luke doesn't tell us a lot about this particular place. He will uh, later refer to it as a house. 
Uh, it's probably a large estate. We know from archaeology there's many huge estates in Jerusalem. It was probably one of these. is large enough so that 120 people could be in one space. So it's, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. And, uh, and suddenly in verse 2, a, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind coming from came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Now, I want you to picture this. We need to use our imaginations here. It's 9 a.m., right? You've come to a prayer meeting, right? You stopped at Starbucks on the way because there was no COVID. All the Starbucks were open. So you've, you've got your Starbucks. You're still waking up. You come in. You see your friends. You've been hanging out with them a lot the last 10 days. You've become very close to High Holy Day, Pentecost. You're trying to kick off the day with prayer. So as you begin to pray, all of a sudden, this sound of a large, like a violent wind begins to fill the room. Now, there is no wind, either inside or outside. It's just the sound of a violent, like a hurricane-level wind. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty eerie to me. It takes me back to the story that we started the day with. And we started the day of the story about this kind of suburb, uh, suburb in a major city in our, in our nation, and uh, this, this young man, his wife is there. One's, uh, he's in the dining room. She's in the kitchen. And all of a sudden, he hears this loud sound, hard to describe, a rumbling, a rising wind. He goes to the window, looks down the alleyway. They're in the top floor of a small two-story two apartment building. He looks down there. He, can, he can't really see anything, but there's a sense of dark eeriness. That the, the, uh, there's less sunlight. It's like darker down there. He's never experienced anything like this, has no context for it. But he just senses something is off. So he grabs his wife. He throws her underneath the table and dives for cover. And that's when it hit. This is actually a true story from uh, my life, from our life. Uh, Lynn and I were young at the time. Uh, we had uh, just been married about a year. I was 20 years old. We had recently moved to an apartment, catch us, in Fullerton, California. For those who are not from this area, that's like in Orange County, so Southern California. And we, we had just recently moved into this two-story apartment, and uh, like I said, this day had started off a beautiful, sunny Southern California day, about 5.30 at night, the sun's starting to go down, and all of a sudden I heard this sound. And once I threw her down and kind of pulled her down underneath the table, dough for cover, that all of a sudden the whole building was hit. I mean, it felt like it was hit by some kind of huge force. Uh, the lights immediately all went out. There was a huge explosion. And it turned out what had happened is we had been hit, believe it or not, by a small tornado. And uh, I know, right? It should be like illegal here, right? Like when you, when, you, when you live in California, you sign up for earthquakes. You do not sign up for tornadoes. Those, that's illegal. Those for other states. But that's what happened. It was crazy. And so what happened is we're under the, it hit what the explosion, it was blowing out the windows of our apartment. In fact, uh, months later, We'd be going through books that at the time had been completely closed and in a bookshelf, tight bookshelf, and we would find shards of glass and asphalt embedded inside the pages of the book. When it hit, it blew out the windows, it tore off part of the roof, the pool down below was completely filled with debris. Even our Volkswagen bug that was parked on the street was dented on top, part of the roof had gone down and hit it. 
And what was so crazy about it is that if we were living in Illinois, as we did later, if we were living in Kansas, as I've gone through on my motorcycle chasing a tornado, uh, if we were in a place like that, this would have all made sense. But I was 20 years old, had lived in California almost my entire life. I had no idea. It was so disorienting as to what is happening. And that's exactly the frame of mind that it puts me in as I read this passage. These followers of Jesus, they've been waiting for 10 days. They don't know if it's going to be 10 days, 20 days. They don't know what to expect. They have no idea when the gift of the Spirit comes, what's it going to be like. They've never read Acts 2. Nothing like this has ever happened before in history. Not like this. And so when this wind comes, it's like a, it's a sound, like a surround sound. And I'm picturing them looking around, trying to figure out where this hurricane sound the wind is coming from. And all of a sudden, they see the next thing. So in verse 3, it says, They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And so while they're looking around, trying to feel where this hur- uh, see where this hurricane veil kind of uh, uh, gale winds are coming from, the sound of it, all of a sudden they see tongues of this like fire filling the room. Now I don't know what this is like. Luke doesn't describe it. I wonder if it's just like the ceiling just disappeared and all they saw was fire. I don't know. But what he's very clear on is that this fire that began to spread out and an individual tongue of flame began to rest on the top of each person. Now in retrospect, this all makes sense because in the Bible, God's coming is often associated with wind and fire. Uh, that, that often the, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God is represented by, um, by the wind. In fact, in both Hebrew and Greek, the word for wind is the same word as the wind for spirit. And fire is often associated with the coming of God. Think with me, uh, Moses, when he is called by God, he's called the burning bush. When the nation of Israel is, is rescued from slavery and taken three months later to, to enter into covenant with God at Mount Sinai, when God shows up with this amazing display of power, that he comes with great clouds and fire, it looked like the top of the mountain was a, was a furnace. When Isaiah was caught up in the presence of the Lord in his vision in Isaiah chapter six, he says, woe unto me, I'm a man of unclean lips and an angel flew from the altar and took a burning coal and put it on his lips. So these are images of God coming, that the Spirit was coming. Just like he came to Mount Sinai, he's coming to this house. And all of a sudden, it happens. And verse four, that all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to, uh, to underline that, Uh, to highlight that, to circle that, that phrase, filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus had told them to wait in Jerusalem until they were baptized in the Holy Spirit. Luke, as we'll see today, he prefers the term filled with the Holy Spirit. Both are powerful metaphors, being baptized, drenched, dunked in the Holy Spirit, being filled like a cup, filled, overflowing with the presence of the Holy Spirit. And catch this, it wasn't just for some of them, it was all of them. They were all filled to the full with the Holy Spirit. 
And what happened is they began to speak in other tongues. Now catch this. If you look at the footnote in your Bible, it'll tell you this is just the normal Greek word for languages. They began to praise God. In fact, they were actually like prophesying. Uh, like the prophets of old, when the Holy Spirit would come and they would begin to prophesy, that's what was happening. They were prophesying about what God had done in this incredible salvation, what, that he's accomplished. He's been faithful to his people through the death, the life, the death of the, the Messiah, that salvation is come. They're, they're prophesying, but catch this, they're prophesying in foreign languages that they've never learned. Obviously, supernatural. Now, remember on this day, there were Jews from all over the world that had come up to on this pilgrim to this pilgrim festival to celebrate the day of Pentecost. And so, when this happens, uh, this draws a crowd. Now, it's interesting because Luke doesn't paint us a clear picture of where this next scene happens. We're not sure whether they just poured out in the street and the streets that were full of pilgrims, a crowd gathered there. Or maybe the, uh, these followers of Jesus, they went to the temple. This is where the presence of God, they associate. Maybe they went to the temple, and, uh, and of course, it was a high holy day. It's going to be packed, 9 o'clock in the morning, one of the Jewish hours of prayer. Uh, we're not sure exactly where it happened. But what happened, what, what we know for sure, is they're speaking in foreign languages, praising, prophesying, and people from all over the Roman Empire were there who spoke those languages, and this drew an incredible crowd. And of course, everyone is trying to figure out what's happening. Uh, some are even saying, I, I just think they've had too much to drink. You know, that if you don't know the language, right, that you're hearing someone speak, they just assume maybe they're drunk. And so Peter's going to get up and give it, no, no, let me explain what's happening. So let's jump to verse 14. And so Peter stands up with the 11. Of course, he's the leader of the band now. And uh, he raises his voice and he addresses the crowd. He says, fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem. So notice he's, he's talking about the residents and pilgrims. And he said, let me explain this to you and listen carefully to what I have to say. So these people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, hey, give me a break. Bars aren't even open yet. He said, no, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And so Peter says, no, no, that's not what's going on. They're not drunk. What's happening here is you're seeing a fulfillment of ancient prophecy. Now, this is interesting because throughout the Old Testament, many of the prophets had predicted that one day God was going to return to his people, that he was going to forgive them of their sins. He was gonna bring judgment on the world for its rebellion, but he was gonna pour out his spirit in powerful ways on his people. And what Peter says is that's what's going on right now. This is a historic event with the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension, the crowning of King Jesus. What's going on now is that that promise of the prophets of this new era where God will pour out his spirit, he said, that's what's happening here. And so he goes on, he's going to quote from Joel chapter 2. And he says uh, in verse uh, 17, in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit. Notice that in the last days. From a biblical point of view, once the Messiah has come, we've entered into the last days. So in the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. 
So catch this, not just on prophets, not just on priests, not just on kings, certain isolated people, but when the coming of God's kingdom comes, he, he promised I would pour out my spirit on all my people. And he said, so here will be some of the signs. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. And that's what's happening right now. These 120 praising God for what he's done in Christ, uh, but in other languages, they're prophesying like prophets of old. He said, your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, so both sexes, uh, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy what we're seeing here, right? And so from this point on, Peter is going to say, okay, so that's what this means. What, what's happening here is a sign that we're entering into this new age, this new era of the spirit promised for hundreds and a thousand years by the prophets of Israel, promised by John the Baptist, promised by Jesus himself. And so from this point on, he's going to preach his first post-resurrection sermon. And he's gonna share with the crowd the life of Jesus, the death of Jesus. He's gonna back it up with Old Testament prophecy. But the bottom line is that Jesus is Lord and Jesus is Christ. We're witnesses of that. We've seen the resurrection. What you're seeing here is a sign coming from God himself that Jesus is the Lord of the universe. Now, if that's true, then many of these Jews are in serious trouble. Because remember, this is happening in Jerusalem less than two months after Jesus was arrested and executed. Many of these people were, had known Jesus. They'd heard Jesus teach. He was the talk of the town. They remember when he was crucified. Uh, and so what, what this means is that if you're a Jew, it means that, hey, you have rejected your Messiah. God has sent you Messiah, you reject him. In fact, for some of the people there, they may have been in the crowd the day they were calling for Jesus' crucifixion. And so this is a serious problem. You are gonna be under God's judgment. You've rejected the Messiah. And so they're gonna call out to Peter and say, well, what should we do? Like we are up a creek without a paddle, what should we do? And Peter's gonna say, you need to repent. Now, the word for repent is a powerful word. In the Greek, the word is metanoeo. Meta means against or with, depending on context. Noeo means to think. So metanoeo means to think against, to change the way you think. You used to think like this, now you think like that. You're, it's a change of direction. And so they thought Jesus was a false Messiah. He got what he deserved. To repent means to say, hey, I'm changing my perspective. I realize he is the Messiah. He is Lord of all creation, and I am coming under his leadership as my resurrected king. And so Peter's gonna say, here's what you need to do. You need to repent. You need to believe in Jesus. And he said, if you do that, two things will happen. First, you'll receive uh, the gift of forgiveness of sins. All crimes against the king will be forgiven by his death for you. But secondly, you too will receive the promise of the Holy Spirit that the prophets have promised and you're seeing here in our lives today. So if you jump down to verse 37, it says, when the people heard this, they heard his message about Jesus it says, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? We're in trouble. 
And Peter said, you need to repent and you need to be baptized. This is kind of the, the first step you take as a follower of Jesus. It's a kind of initiation right into the movement of Jesus. And you, you do that for the forgiveness of sins. And he said, and then you will, catch that, you will. Not, there's no question about this. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, just like we have. And he said, catch this, the promise it's for you, it's for your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call, right? And so this, this is a passage that we're looking at today. We're looking at the, the, the promise that, that Jesus told them to wait in Jerusalem, the Spirit's coming, they describe, here's what happens when the Spirit's coming. And, Paul, and Peter says, this is part of a much larger narrative, the big picture story the Bible is telling. You need to respond to that by following Jesus, bowing the knee. You'll receive forgiveness, and you'll be part of this new era. You'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, what I want to do for our time today is I want to sit back, and I want to highlight two big picture principles that are, are powerful about Pentecost, what Pentecost means, what it means for our lives, and then end with a couple questions about how does this fit for our lives, how does it apply to our lives, especially uh, right now in the midst of this crisis that we're going through. So there in your note sheet, you have a section that's called The Power of the Resurrection, The Day of Pentecost. And so I want to start with just two big picture principles. And the first one goes like this, that Pentecost is a turning point. What, what happened on Pentecost is a turning point, in, a, a major turning point in the history of the world. Now, you say, what do I mean? Well, here's what I found, is that whether you're a longtime follower of Jesus or even just relatively short, but if you've ever read this passage, that often today when we read Acts chapter two, we start to personalize it right away. We start to say, what does this passage mean for me personally? We start asking a lot of questions like, wow, that's really interesting. They spoke in different languages or spoke in tongues. Hey, do I need to speak in tongues? When someone becomes a Christian, does everyone need to speak in tongues? When I became a Christian, I didn't speak in tongues. Do I need to have that experience? Do, do I receive? And so we begin to personalize the message. But what I want you to catch is before we can do that, before we can understand what Pentecost means for me personally, we have to understand what Pentecost means in the big picture story the Bible's telling. And what we see today is that Pentecost is a major turning point in the history of this, in the spiritual history of our world. And you say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, stop and think with me. The last few weeks from Easter on, we've been focusing on these key events in the life of Jesus that were major turning points in the spiritual history of our race. So for example, as followers of Jesus, we understand that Good Friday, that Good Friday was a turning point. That when Jesus died on the cross, that something happened in the unseen realm, that Jesus made atonement for our sins. And as a result of that, you and I are able to enter into relationship with God and have our sins forgiven, that something happened on Good Friday. There was a spiritual transaction. It was a turning point in the history of our race. And then we go to Easter. And I think as we're learning in this series, we may not have understood this before, but we're learning in this series 
is that on Easter, something happened. Easter was a turning point, not only in the life of Jesus, but in the life of every one of us when we give our life to Jesus. And it was a turning point in the, in, for all creation. That the, that the resurrection of Jesus was the first step and the resurrection of all creation. That when Jesus came out of the grave, something happened. It was a turning point for our race and all, uh, all creation. A couple weeks ago, <laughs> we looked at the ascension of Jesus. And we saw that ascension of Jesus was much more than a creative way for him to go home. That when Jesus returned to heaven, that he was crowned. There was a coronation ceremony where he was crowned king of creation. That when Jesus returned, there was a change in his status, a change in his assignment. That when he returned, he was given the name above all names because he had humbled himself unto death, death on a cross, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. That there was a transition that Jesus stepped into a new role as the son of God, the son of man, the king over all all creation. Something happened. It was a turning point. Well, here's what I want you to catch, that on the day of Pentecost, it was the next turning point, that what had happened is now that Jesus has died, now that Jesus has risen, now that Jesus has ascended, now that Jesus has been crowned, we are now ready for Jesus to take the gift of the Father and initiate a whole new era in human history with the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, we see that in this passage today. This is the point Peter is making. The question is, why are all these people speaking and praising God, prophesying in languages and everything? Why is that happening? And Peter says, this is a sign and a signal that we're entering into the last days. That with the the coming of the Messiah, with his death, with his resurrection, his ascension, his coronation, we are entering into a new era of human history. In fact, if you look there in your note sheet, not at the next passage, which is in John 7, we'll come back to that in a minute, but look at the next one from Acts chapter 2. This is what he says to the crowd. We skipped over these verses earlier. This is the same day, the same sermon on on, uh, the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter two. And this is what Peter says. He says, God has raised this, you know, the question is why, uh, why are people speaking in foreign languages and praising God supernaturally? And he said, well, here's why. God has raised this Jesus to life and we are all witnesses of it and exalted to the right hand of God. Remember, he has ascended. Sit here at my feet till I make all your enemies. Psalm 110, we looked at a couple weeks ago. Exalted to the right hand of God. He has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see in here. Peter says, what is going on here? This is not just an arbitrary experience for the first 120. What is going on here is a supernatural sign that we're entering into this whole new era in human history where God is gonna be pouring his spirit out, not on a few selected people, but on all his people. Now, this is interesting because Jesus had actually talked about this. 
And if you go there in your note sheet, you go back to John 7. Let's pick that up. <laughs> in John 7, we're told about a fastening event. Jesus has traveled south uh, to Jerusalem for the third great annual pilgrimage feast. So you've got Passover in the spring. You've got, um, you've got Pentecost right before summer, 50 days later. And then in the fall in October, you have the Feast of Tabernacles, which celebrates a variety of things, but it's also the last harvest feast of the year. And it's, it's a, a time where they would pray for rain for the coming year because they're so dependent on rain for their crops. And there was all these special ceremonies that the priests would go through with water ceremonies, and it was parades, and it was a really big deal. And so Jesus uses that picture, uses that time, these water ceremonies, on the very last day of the feast, he gets up and he says, on the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, gives her life to me, follows me. As the scripture has said, and he's probably quoting from Isaiah 44 about that God said, I would pour my streams in the desert, the spirit. Uh, he said, streams of, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from him, right? So I want you to catch a couple of things that Jesus is saying. In the midst of this feast of tabernacles, he, set, he gets up and he says, listen, for everyone who believes in me, trusts me, follows me, he said, I will satisfy the deepest thirst of the human heart. And then secondly, he says, and not only will I satisfy the deepest thirst of your heart, but I will transform you so that you will become a, stream, a spring of living water who will bring life to others. Now, of course, if you're there that day, the question is, what's he talking about? This stream of living water, what is he referring to? And John the Apostle, who's writing this gospel about 50 or 60 years later, he's had time to reflect. He's seen what Jesus was talking about. And so now John is going to give us his personal commentary on what Jesus said. And look what John says. He says, by this, the statement that I will, you know, give them streams of living water, by this, that Jesus meant the Spirit whom those who believed in him were, catch this next word. What's the next word? Later, underline that, were later to receive. And then catch this, John says, up to that time, the spirit had not yet been given. We had not entered into this new era of the Holy Spirit. That had not happened yet. And the question is, why hadn't it happened? And John says this, um, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. You see, there was an order to this, and God's redemption, his restoration of our right, there was an order. Messiah had to come and die for our sins and make atonement. And then he had to rise from the dead and be glorified. And then, and only then, when atonement had been made and it was possible to have a relationship with God through the forgiveness of his sins, and he had risen to the right hand of the Father and he'd been crowned king of creation, then and only then was he able to pour out his spirit and initiate this new era that had been 
prophesied by the prophets, whether it's Joel or Ezekiel or Isaiah, this new era in human history when he would pour out his spirit on all his people. So what I want you to catch is in the same way that Good Friday was a turning point, in the same way that Easter was a turning point, in the same way the ascension and coronation was a turning point, that what we're, what, what we're witnessing here in chapter 2 of Acts is a major turning point in the spiritual history of the world. And once we understand that, now we're able to go on to point number two. And so point number two is that Pentecost is personal. In other words, Pentecost wasn't just for the 120, and it wasn't just for the 3,000 who gave their lives to Jesus that day and received forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit, that Pentecost is for every person that comes to Jesus. What I want you to catch is that every one of us needs a personal Pentecost, that it is not enough to have our sins forgiven. We need to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit to lead us, to guide us, to transform us, and to empower us to live the resurrected life of King Jesus. And what we learn today is that that happens for each of us the moment that we give our life to Jesus. That when we give our life to Jesus, that we enter into this new era and not just forgiven, we are received the gift. And I want to point this out again. We read this before, but I just want to highlight there on your note sheet, this is what Peter told the, the crowd that day. Repent, be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. That's what you get first. But secondly, you'll also receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And if there's any question, the next verse, the very next verse, he goes on to say, this promise is for you, it's for your children, it's for all who are far off for all whom the Lord our God will call. That this is the promise. So we've entered into the new era. And so when a man or woman comes to Jesus and we bow the knee, we ask him to forgive us, we make him our Lord, that we receive these two gifts. And it's a consistent teaching of the New Testament. In fact, the New Testament goes on, so, uh, goes on to, to the extent to say that this is the sign, this is what a, a Christian is. This is what a Christ, follow, a Christ follower is someone who has received the Spirit of God. This is why Jesus came. He came so we could be forgiven to make a way so the Holy Spirit could come and dwell in us and you and I could become a temple of the Holy Spirit. And without the gift of the Spirit, we don't belong to Christ. In fact, in Romans 8, it's what he says, that if we don't have the Holy Spirit, we're none of his, right? And the beautiful thing is, is when we give our life to Jesus, this is what happens. We receive a personal Pentecost. Now, for some people, it will come with similar signs, right? Some of you have probably had an experience like this where you gave your life to Jesus and maybe you had a similar experience as the early apostles. You may have even spoken in a language you've never learned, a language uh, to praise the Father. Some of you, when you gave your life to Jesus, it may have been very dramatic. Some have been very quiet, but it doesn't matter how it comes. 
because the fact of the matter is, when we give our life to Jesus, the Bible is very clear that we receive this gift of the Holy Spirit. And each of us needs to have his own personal Pentecost to live a resurrected life. Now, this leads to a couple of questions. And there in your note sheet, there's a section called the turning point, two key questions. And so, once we understand that Pentecost was a turning point for the whole world, but that when we come to Jesus, we step in and we experience our own Pentecost, it leads to two very important questions. Number one, the first question is, how full are you? And you say, well, what do you mean? Well, I want, I want you to catch that Luke uh, loves this phrase, being filled with the Spirit. And I, I pointed this out before that Jesus, when he talked about the coming of the Spirit in chapter one, he said, hey, John baptized with water, but remember what he said, in many days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit, right? And so, uh, and so he said, uh, that's how Jesus described what was happening in the day of Pentecost, but that's not how Luke describes it. He likes a different metaphor. He really loves this metaphor of being filled with the Holy Spirit. And I, and I love this because you can picture this. If you picture your life like a cup or a jar or a vessel, uh, that when we come to Jesus, that he pours the Holy Spirit into us, right? Like living water. And, and what Luke wants us to understand is that God's desire for our life is that we would be filled with the Holy Spirit, not just a little bit of the Holy Spirit, um, not just a dribble of the Holy Spirit, not just a quarter full, not just a half full, you know, how are you doing? Well, I'm, I'm at the half le halfway level. That, that God's vision for our life is that we would be filled up to the top, brimming over streams of living water coming out of us, filled with the Holy Spirit. And so this is why I pointed this out. There in your note sheet, I put a series of verses where Luke describes for us uh, his understanding of this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. This is what we're shooting for. And I, I want you to see what it looks like to be filled with the Holy Spirit and some of the other descriptions that happen when someone is full of the Holy Spirit. Like, what does that person look like? How can you tell if someone's filled with the Holy Spirit? And so the first passage is in Acts chapter two, right? That's the one we read today. And uh, the only thing I'd point out there is, is that all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, right? So this is God's vision for all of us, not, not just the apostles, but all these believers were filled with the Holy Spirit. This was God's vision for their life. If you, if you jump ahead a couple chapters to chapter four, the church is beginning to experience some serious persecution, some real threats of violence, but they don't wanna get, they, they don't wanna back off telling the world about Jesus. So they get together in a special prayer meeting. And this is what happens in Acts 4.31. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all, catch that again, all filled with the Holy Spirit. But notice what happens. They spoke the word, word of God boldly. So one of the things that happens is the Holy Spirit fills it up. He gives us a boldness, a courage, a courage to share the message of Jesus, a courage to face life's difficulties. If you jump to chapter six, in chapter six, there's a new crisis in the early church where there's some squabble going on between two sets of widows and some feeling they're being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So they need to put together a new task force to lead this distribution of food. And the apostles come to the church and they said this in chapter six, brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and 
wisdom. One of the marks of someone who's filled with the Spirit is they're growing in wisdom. They're seeing life from God's perspective. The next example is from Acts chapter 7. This comes from the life of the very first martyr of the early church. His name was Stephen. He was stoned in in a brutal mob attack. And as he was being stoned, just imagine the pain. It says, Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. He looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand. And it goes on to say that as he's dying, with his dying breath, he's praying that Jesus will forgive these persecutors, just like Jesus prayed for his persecutors on the cross, that God would forgive them. And so we see that when someone is full of the Holy Spirit, they've got this eternal perspective, and they have a love even for their enemies. In Acts chapter 9, we have the, the, the account of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, who turns into the apostle Paul. And when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus, the, the glory of Jesus' resurrected body was so bright, it blinded Paul. And for three days, he couldn't see. And after three days, Jesus sent a disciple named Ananias to go and pray for him and heal him. And when Ananias got there, he said, Brothers Saul, the Lord, in other words, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, he has sent me so that you may see again and that you might be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is what you're going to need, Paul. In order to carry out the commission Jesus has given you, to have the the power, the sense of purpose, your life calling, you're going to need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then in Acts 11, we're introduced to a man named Barnabas, who we'll talk about more next week. But he becomes a partner of the Apostle Paul as they share the message of Jesus in the Roman Empire. And in Acts chapter 11, uh, Luke introduces him to us. And he said, he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. When we're filled with the Holy Spirit, it transforms our character. It, It deepens our faith. And finally, in Acts 13, when Paul and Barnabas go out in their first Jesus-sharing expedition, as people come to Christ, even in the midst of in- intense persecution, it says, Luke says, the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And so this is what Jesus was talking about. Hey, don't leave Jerusalem until you have the Holy Spirit because you're gonna need the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, he's gonna fill you with courage. He's going to fill you with wisdom. And he's going to fill you with mercy and compassion. And he's going to give your life purpose and power. He's going to transform your character, strengthen your faith, and bring you joy. Don't go forward until the Holy Spirit comes. So the question that I have for you is how full are you? As you look at this list of what the Holy Spirit does, And especially in this time of crisis, would you describe yourself as full of the Holy Spirit? Would you say, hey, you know, honestly, I feel like I've just got a dribble. Um, I've got, maybe I'm quarter full, I'm half full, I'm three quarter full. How would you assess your experience with the Holy Spirit? Do you sense the presence and the power and the teaching and the shepherding and the leadership of the Spirit in your life? Do you sense him transforming your character, giving you what Paul will later describe as the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, you know, long-suffering? 
Like it's the Holy Spirit. Do Do you sense the Holy Spirit working in and through you? Do you feel like you're drinking deeply of the water of life? Are you satisfied by the living water? Or do you feel like you're thirsty right now? So the first question is just a self-evaluation question, right? No, it's not just between you. You know, like we're not raising hands. You're not coming forward. Just, just yourself. Like, hey, how are you doing with the Holy Spirit? Are you sensing the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, especially in the midst of this crisis right now? And then number two, the second question is, how thirsty are you? You know, Jesus said that those who believe in him, that he would satisfy their thirst by the gift of the Holy Spirit. You know, after we ask ourselves the question, how full are we? We need to ask the next question of at this point in my life, how thirsty am I? How thirsty am I for a greater dose of the Holy Spirit? And so for some of us right now, you may say, you know what, I, I feel like I'm really on track. This is a hard time, but I, I really sense the Holy Spirit speaking to me. I sense him speaking through his word and through worship. I experience his peace. He's giving me power to persevere in a very difficult time. He's giving me the, the power to love those who are hard to love. And I, I really, I'm sensing the presence of his spirit. I feel pretty full of the Holy Spirit. But for others of us, we may be saying, you know, not so much. If I'm honest, uh, I am not experiencing the presence, the power, the patience, the leading of the Spirit. And the question is, well, if that's you, how thirsty are you? And do you want to do anything about that? Do you want to move forward? And here's what I'd say, if, if you're thirsty today, if you want more of the Holy Spirit in your life, I wanna give you a couple simple steps that I'd recommend. And I believe that if you will take these sincerely, the Lord will respond. And it might be immediate, it might be in a couple weeks. Sometimes he has to set some things up behind the scene to get you ready. But I believe if you're serious, the Lord will meet you and fill you in a fresh way with his Holy Spirit. The steps are very simple. The first step is just to go to the Lord and ask him to fill you. You know, it's interesting. Jesus was talking once to his disciples, and this is what he said in Luke chapter 11. He said, if you then, talking to his disciples, he said, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. He said, you know, you're a fallen race, but even you, know how to give good gifts to your children. He said, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? In other words, the the, the Father wants to give you a fuller dose experience of the presence of his Spirit. And so Jesus in this passage, it was a passage on prayer, and he's encouraging us to pray and to ask the Father to fill us with the Holy Spirit. And the second, the second step you need to take, though, and this is equally as important, in fact, in some ways, just as important, or maybe even more, is that we, when we ask the Lord to fill us, we need to ask him, is there anything in my life right now 
that is keeping the flow of your spirit from flowing out of my life, into and out of my life? Is there any sin I'm holding on to? Is there anything I'm doing or not doing? Is there an attitude? Is there an action? Is there a value? Is there a habit? Is there a priority? Is there something you've asked me to do and I've said no? You know, one of the things I know is that one of the things that blocks the work of the Holy Spirit faster than anything else in our life is disobedience. When God has said not to do something and we choose to do it anyway, or when he says we need to do something and we, we don't do it. You know, it's, it's not just a, a negative, like cutting out. Sometimes it's, a, it's an adding something, right? Like the Holy Spirit may have been asking you for a long time, hey, during this corona crisis, you need to be drawing close to me. You, you need to be spending time with me. You need to be pursuing me like we talked about at the very beginning of this crisis. And the Holy Spirit's been talking to you, but you've been making excuses. You haven't been doing it, right? And the Lord wants to fill you with his spirit, but you're not responding. On the other hand, there may be something in your life. There may be a relationship you're holding on to. You need to let go. There may be a sin that you're hiding and harboring that needs to, to go. There may be a value or a priority. There may be something you need to surrender. But here's what I know is that nothing will stop the flow of the Holy Spirit in our life faster than disobedience. You know, it's interesting. In a couple chapters, the apostles Peter and John are going to be dragged once again before the religious leaders, the same religious leaders that arrested and executed Jesus just a few months before. And uh, they're brought before him, and, and this is not the first time, and they've been brought in before and warned not to teach at all in the name of Jesus, to stop blaming them for his death and, and to uh, just stop teaching about Jesus. But they're so filled with the Holy Spirit, they just cannot stop. And so now they're being brought again. And of course, the reason they're being brought is they're doing all these miracles. The Holy Spirit's doing miracles through them, right? And the religious leaders are so frustrated. And when they're brought in, in chapter 5, this is what Peter says to these religious leaders. He said, you know, we're witnesses of these things, the, the resurrection of Jesus. And Peter and John, like, we're witnesses of these things. And he says, and so is the Holy Spirit, you know, doing all these miracles. He said, so is the Holy Spirit, catch us, whom God has given to those who what? To obey him. Here's the thing, men and women, we cannot ask the resurrected king to fill us with his spirit when we are living in rebellion. That will never work. That if we want to be filled with the spirit of the resurrected king, we have to surrender our lives to his leadership. And so as we go through this crisis, I don't know about you, but I need the Holy Spirit more than ever. I need the Spirit to keep my perspective right. I need the Spirit to give me the patience to deal with life and people that come up. I need the Holy Spirit to set my eyes on eternity. I need the Holy Spirit to give me wisdom in decision-making and relationships. I don't know about you, but I need the Holy Spirit. And I believe you do too. And so what I'm asking is, if in this time you said, honestly, I am not filled with the Spirit, my re spirit reserves, they're, they're getting down. I'm at the dregs. That I want to encourage and challenge you 
to join me and to pray together that the Lord would fill us with his spirit. But here's the important part. When you pray that prayer, if, you're, if you are serious, you have got to add the second part. If there's anything in my life that is blocking the flow of your spirit, will you show it to me so I can surrender it to you? It's a beautiful thing that this is a choice. You know, later on, um, later on in the, God, in the epistles, the letters of Paul, in Ephesians chapter 5, he will talk to this church and he will say, don't be drunk with wine. In fact, it's there on your note sheet. He said, don't be drunk with wine, which may refer to the way they used to worship the gods uh, with a lot of alcohol and, uh, and kind of orgies and so on. He says, don't be drunk with wine. He said, but be filled with the Spirit. It's a choice. And so I want to invite you to join me and to seek the Lord to make that choice that we are sons and daughters of the King. We have entered the new era that was broken forth by Pentecost. You're a son, a daughter of the Father. The Father is willing to give you a full dose of His Spirit. And so I want to challenge you that as we go into this final worship song, that you would go before the Lord and you begin a journey and say, Father, I want to be filled with your Spirit. And I pray if there's anything in my life that's holding me back, that you would show me what it is and then just give me the grace and the power to say yes to you, to surrender that so that I can have a fresh dose and filling of your spirit that out of me, that I would, I would experience that living water again and that out of me would flow life-giving water to others. So as we pray now, we go into this time of worship Feel free to join us in worship, or maybe you just want to let these words just wash over your soul as you're in the presence of the Lord and asking for him to fill you with his spirit. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come, and we come not based on our authority or based on our efforts or our work. We come based on your life and your death and your resurrection and the new relationship we have because of the forgiveness of sins. And Father, we just say we're in a time of crisis right now, and if, if ever, if as much as ever, we need a full dose of your spirit. And so we pray, God, you would come and meet us in this time of worship. We surrender our lives. We ask you if there's anything in our life that's holding back the flow of the spirit of the resurrected Jesus in us, we pray that you would show us so we can surrender to you, so we can rise with you to a new life, a life of courage, a life of wisdom, a life of mercy and compassion, a life of purpose and power, a life of character and faith, and a life of deep joy, even in the hard times. We thank you for dying for us to give us this gift. And we pray you'd fill us now with the fullness of your spirit. We pray it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.